months ago, I um, spoke on hope because I really feel like this year is a year to recover our hope. And, and that's because of, of three things. One, uh, our church has just been going through a difficult season and, and it feels like we are, we're past that and we're ready to get back to recovering our, our vision of bringing the hope and healing to Christ to our community one life at a time. And, and I feel like if, if we're going to do that, we have to reconnect with what it feels like and what it looks like to have hope again. Uh, the second reason is that uh, we are entering a season where the message is there is no hope except in our political candidate. And it comes from both sides. Both sides are trying to convince you of that. And, and I want to say, well, that is completely wrong. Uh, there is no hope except outside of Christ. And we need to recover that feeling and that message. And so uh, I started that last time. And, and this time, we're just going to continue kind of looking into hope. And last time, I said that hope is the confidence in the good news that we have yet to grasp. And I want you guys to not just have the feeling of hope, but also the virtue of hope which means that I want you guys' perspectives and priorities to be shaped and changed by this confidence in the good news. So the virtue of hope is having the confidence of the good news shape your perspective and your priority. And so I chose a passage that there is one verse in particular, we'll look at more verses, but there's one verse in particular that jumped out at me that, that I'm going to say if, if what you hear today, everything that you hear today should help you do this one verse. And it's from verse 18. He said, God did this, so God did something really wild, really crazy that the author of Hebrews is going to jump into this. By two unchangeable things in which it is impossible to God, for God to lie, we who have fled to take the hope, take hold of the hope set before us, may be greatly encouraged. Here's what I want. Here's what this passage wants. Here's what the author of Hebrews says. God did something wild and crazy just so that this could happen for you. And that is that you would take hold of hope and that you would hold on to it and cling to it. And if you've already taken on to that hope, that you would be greatly encouraged. That you would just be encouraged today and that's what we want from you. That's what I believe the author of Hebrews wants. That's what I believe God wants from you. So let's look into that passage and explore it together. Let's all read Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 9. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. 
He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what God has promised. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, I have to tell you about a dream that I had a few months ago. And this dream was really weird because nothing happened in it. Literally, nothing happened. I dreamed that I was sitting around bored. That was my dream. And, and somewhere deep in the back of my subconscious came this thought, and it was, I hope I wake up soon because this dream is really boring. <laughs> and, and we all get bored sometimes. We all get bored in life, and, and sometimes, we get even bored in church. I know it's hard to believe, but sometimes you can get bored in church. You can get bored in the Christian life. And boredom is kind of good because it often pushes you to achieve something greater. But oftentimes, boredom is very dangerous. Like for me, I've been trying to eat healthier and, and lose a little bit of weight and it is good for three meals of the day. I can have a healthy breakfast, a healthy lunch, and a healthy dinner, but then it gets a little bit late at night and I become dangerous. I start searching through all my cupboards and all my, my fridge and, and looking for something to eat and I have to stop and remind myself Shane, you aren't hungry, you are bored. Boredom gets very dangerous to me. And the author of Hebrews, right before our passage here, is, is really worried that the people he's writing to will find Christianity boring and start walking away. He's, he's, he gives this warning that says, if you have tasted that God is good, if you have seen his goodness and the wonders of him, and if you find that boring, you're in trouble. 
If you can look at the creator of the heavens and the earth, who is all powerful, who is like a lion that cannot be tamed, and you go, I'm bored by that, you might be in trouble. And he warns them, don't let that happen to you. But the good news for you guys is I decided to skip that portion of the passage and go right to where he says, don't worry, that won't happen to you. So let's see why, and I believe it won't happen to you guys either, and let's see why. It starts in verse 9. He says, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. Now, when you read that, you might think, that, that the author of Hebrews is kind of painting a picture where, where God is going to judge you and there's going to be a balance of scales and he's going to put the bad things that you've done and if there's enough good things, God will let you into heaven. But I don't think that's what the author of Hebrews is telling them. He's not saying, I, I believe you've done enough good works to be saved because the entire book of Hebrews is about how Jesus and only Jesus can get us to heaven. Only his sacrifice can get us to heaven. We can't rely on anything else, especially our good works. So what is he saying? Well, if you look closely, he says, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you've helped other people. And we know that other people can do good works and help other people, but they can't do it out of love to God. A non-Christian doesn't love God, so he can help as many people, but it won't come out of love for God. What he's saying is God is remembering the works that have come out of your love for God, which was inspired by when the Holy Spirit came and gave you a new He's talking about the works that you've done after you've been saved. And he's saying, if God inspired you to keep doing those good works, to start those good works, he's going to bring it to completion all the way. He is going to be good and remember, and he's going to help you continue to live in that and do that. Paul says it more specifically in his prayer for the Philippians in Philippians 1. He says... I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. And so that is good news for us, that we know that if God has been working in our lives, he's going to keep that going. He's going to be good enough, and he's going to help us keep going. And if that's true for us as individuals, that's true for us in the church. And that's why I feel like this warming station is a great sign of hope for us. Because God, in his goodness, has given us opportunity after opportunity to serve our community, to do good. He has been good to us in allowing us opportunities to do good for others. And, and when we have gone through all this hard time, 
He showed us his goodness by giving us another opportunity to do good. And he showed us his goodness by allowing us to take that opportunity and make a difference for our community. He has been so good to us in allowing us to have this warming center opportunity. He's showing his goodness and justice. And what do we do with that? Well, the author of Hebrews says, well, just don't get lazy. Keep going. This is what he says, in, starting in verse 11. He says, we want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who faith and patience inherit what God was promised. So you guys are doing great. Just don't get lazy. Don't get discouraged. Don't, don't, don't think, oh, I've done our good thing. I'm good. I can walk away. Keep pursuing. Keep going on. And many of you here are, are in retirement, right? And, and you might have been sold this bill of goods that the best retirement is the retirement where you do nothing where you get the biggest lazy boy and have afternoon naps every day of a week. That is the best retirement. The best retirement is about how many different trips that you can go on and all the cruises with all you can eat buffets that you can go on. That is the best retirement. And I'm here to tell you that that is the worst retirement. In God's eyes, the best retirement is how many young people can you pour your wisdom and experience into? How many people who don't know Jesus can you disciple and make a difference? How many missionaries can you support? How much can you invest in the work of the kingdom? That is the best retirement. Don't be convinced that, that it's time for you to be lazy. It is time for you to do more than you've ever thought before. And if you're younger than retirement and you aren't retired yet, don't be convinced that your work and your job is the best way to invest in your life. The best way to invest in your life is to invest in the kingdom, store up treasures in heaven, Keep working. Don't get lazy. And the author of Hebrews says that we have great examples for us to follow. If you don't know how to do it, he says, look at the great examples that come before us. In the back half of two, he says, we don't become lazy, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I surely will bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. So the story of Abraham can be our encouragement of hope. And so one day, Abraham was out with his family, and God spoke to him. 
God said, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Wow, what a great calling. What an amazing calling to adventure. How old do you think Abraham was? when he got set off on this adventure. He wasn't a young 20-year-old with life all set before him. He didn't just graduate from college and was wondering what his career path would be. No, he was 75 years old. Can you imagine at 75, God going, I know you lived a great life, but your adventure is just starting. And I am 34, and I am tired of looking for the next adventure. I am ready to settle down. And here is Abraham at 75 hearing, nope, I got a huge adventure for you. You gotta go. And Abraham believed the promise God made for him, and he set out. And he set out, and he finally got to Canaan, the land he was supposed to go. And there was famine in the land, so he couldn't even settle there right away. He had to go to Egypt. And then when he was finally getting back, he, was, he ended up separating from his family. And his family ended up going to the better land than him. And he was waiting and waiting. And, and God comes to him when he's like in his 80s now. And God says, hey, Abraham, trust me, I am your shield and your great reward. And Abraham said to God, yeah, I don't think so. You're, you're, you're telling me that you're going to bless my descendants, but here's the deal, God. You haven't given me any descendants. All I got is a servant. A servant's going to get all this. What are you thinking, God? You know, I followed you, started following you like 10 years ago. And I've been wandering for like 10 years now. And I'm still waiting on your promise. Is any of it going to come? And God makes a promise. And he continues to say, you will have a great descendants. He said, look to the stars. You will have more descendants than the stars in the sky. And God upped his promise by making a covenant with him. He had Abraham cut animals in two, and he passed through it in the middle. And God said, my promise for you is even more sure. And Abraham walked away more confident in God's promise. But a couple years later, he said, okay, it's time for me to take it in my own hands. And he took his handmaid, and, and you know, even everyone who, who does right by God fails. And Abraham definitely failed here. But God came back after his failure. And he says this to them. He said, Abraham, I have this covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram, but your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. 
I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for generations to come, to be your God and God of your descendants after you. And Abraham said, that sounds great, but can you do it with the guy I already started, Ishmael? And, it, and God said, nope, that ain't the plan. You're going to have a son with Sarah, and it's going to happen. And finally, after he was 100 years old, 25 years after that new adventure started for him, he finally got the son promised to him. He waited patiently, and God kept his promise. And can you imagine the pressure that Isaac and Abraham has with Isaac now? Like, this is supposed to be descendants of that, that outnumber the stars of the sky, and you got one. Like, there is no playing on the playground, because that is way too dangerous for you. <laughs> you know, like, like he is going to be a watchful parent. Like, all I have is one chance to get a descendants of the stars in the sky. It's, it's, I'm going to be extra careful. And can you add year after year this until God calls out to Abraham and says, okay, now kill the son I promised you. What? You want me? I, I, it was so hard to get him. It was so hard to get here. Now you want me to kill him? What are you doing? And yet Abraham responded with faith. And he went and he raised his knife to kill him. And the author of Hebrews in chapter 11, thinking about this, said, the only thing that could have been possibly going through Abraham's mind is there must be a resurrection of the dead because God is going to keep his promise even if I kill this boy. He had that kind of faith. And when he went, God stopped him and said, look at that ram. Take that ram. Abraham Continue to wait patiently and trust in the promised one. And after that happened, God comes to Abraham and he says, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sands on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. And so Abraham's family grew and grew, but the prophets came and they, they noticed one problem. This blessing given to Abraham that all nations of the earth will be blessed, hasn't really been completed yet. In fact, for the prophets, Israel has completely failed to do that. And they have been scattered. 
they've been destroyed. And is God going to keep that promise? And they said, yes, yes, he will. One day he's going to send a Messiah, a king, who's going to rescue Israel. He's going to make a brand new covenant, a brand new promise with them that will help them keep the commandments, that will help them become a light to all people and bless all people. In fact, he's going to bring in all nations unto himself, and all nations get to be part of Abraham's blessing through faith in the Messiah. Somebody is coming, and he's going to give a new heaven and a new earth that's going to bless everyone, everyone who can possibly become part of Abraham's is going to receive that blessing. God is not going to fail. And the author of Hebrews picks up on that. And he says, Jesus has come, and he allows us to be part of that blessing. And we get to look forward to the day when, when we get that new heaven and new earth where all nations will be fully blessed, where we get to live in the blessings, we get to have the inheritance of the Son of God. We get these amazing things. And the author of Hebrews looks all the way back onto the story, all the way back to Genesis 22, where Abraham almost sacrifices Isaac. And he pulls out something that convinced him that everyone will get that blessing. That convinces him that there is a great blessing to come. And he says, this will blow your mind. How God made sure that we knew that blessing was coming. He says in verse 13, when God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. He confirmed it with the oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things with which it is possible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. Did you catch what the author of Hebrews caught? God swore. He swore that he would bless us. You know, it started with just a promise. God said, you go, Abraham, and I promise I will bless you. And then if that wasn't enough, he made a covenant. And then he made an everlasting covenant. But to top it all off, he said, I swear that I will bless you. I will curse myself if you don't receive this blessing. If you think about it, that's like the highest thing possible, right? Like if you're on the playground and you say, I swear on my mother that I did not eat the last chocolate chip cookie, that ends the argument. Everyone's like, well, he swore by his mother. We're good. This is good. Like, like swearing is a big deal. You know, if we go in the court and we swear on the Bible. There is a big deal about swearing. And, and, it, and the Bible says that God wanting you to be absolutely sure 
that his blessing is coming says, I swear it is coming. But the author of Hebrew picks up on something even bigger because we don't just swear by something small. We don't go, I swear by this pebble of dirt. We go, I swear by something bigger. I swear by the grave of my mother. And, and, and Abraham, the author of Hebrews says, God swore by the greatest thing possible. You know, earlier this year, there was a bank run on SVB Bank. The bank swore to keep the money, and people were like, bank, that's not good enough. We don't trust that promise. We're getting our money out. And so what did they do? They turned to the U.S. government and said, if you don't trust us, look to the government. And the government came in and said, we swear that we'll keep the money safe. And that was able to stop the bank run. It was enough. Well, let me tell you, God doesn't need the U.S. government to keep his money safe. God didn't need anything to swear by. He swore by himself because there's nothing greater. He is the maker of heaven and earth. And he said, I swear by myself, the creator of the universe, that your blessing is coming. It will come you can be absolutely sure of that. And look, in verse uh, 17, he said, God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his very purpose clear to the heirs of what was promised. The heirs of what were promised is us. We are that heirs through faith in Jesus. We are heirs of Abraham. So God wanted to make it very clear to us that his purpose to bless us, his plan to bless us is unchanging. It cannot be moved. Ephesians 1 says that before the foundation of the earth, he chose us to be holy and blameless before him. Before the foundation of the earth. Before he even said, let there be light. He predestined us to be adopted as sons and heirs with his son. God made his purpose sure. We can be sure his promise is complete because he swore by himself. There is nothing greater. We can be absolutely confident that his promise to bless us, his promise to us that we will receive an inheritance in the new heaven and the new earth cannot be shaken. It will not be changed whatsoever. His promises are absolutely sure. And we get to rest in those promises. They cannot be changed. The author of Hebrews says it's unchangeable because he swore and it's also unchangeable because he cannot lie. He will always say the truth. He will always finish his promises. So what promises are you holding on to today? Is it from Isaiah where he says, if you walk through the waters, he will be with you and through the flames? Is it at the great commission where he says, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age? Are you holding on to his promise when he says that if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness? 
or like my favorite promise in Isaiah 54, 10, that, the whole, that though the hills may be shaken and the mountains may be removed, my loving kindness will ever be shaken and my covenant of peace will never be removed, says the Lord who loves you. God's promise will not change. You can hold on to that. And when you hold on to his promise, you get this hope. And verse 19 tells us what this hope does for us. It says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has emerged on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. When we trust in God's promise, we get this hope. And this hope is firm and secure, and it can anchor our souls. Are you tired of having just the things in this life move you and shape you and make you depressed and concerned? Some days I have to remind myself, no, Things aren't bad, you just hate mornings, Shane. Like, <laughs> are, are you tired of just bad mornings being able to throw you off? You need a hope that can be an anchor in the storm. Is there a big storm in your life and you're getting tossed to and fro? You need a hope that is an anchor to the storm. You need something better. And here, let me tell you something about anchors. They can be big and they can look beautiful, but if you can see it, it's not working. If you're sitting on the boat and you see the anchor right in front of you, guess what? It's not working. You are still being tossed to and fro. You have to have that anchor in a place deep and dark in the bottom of the sea that you cannot see. And let me tell you, if you're looking for something to be an anchor to your soul and you can see it, it's not going to do the work for you. If you're looking for money to be the anchor for your soul, if you're looking for a big enough retirement account to be an anchor for your soul, well, let me tell you, if you can see the numbers, it's not going to work for you. If you're looking for family and friends to be your anchor in tough times, well, let me tell you, family and friends can be encouraging and they can be great, but if they're the anchor for your soul, if you can see them, it's not going to do enough for you. You need that confidence in the good news that you cannot see, that you cannot grasp, to hold you fast in tough times. And here's the crazy thing about this anchor, is it is not dropped deep in the bottom of the ocean, but instead it's brought into the presence of God by Jesus himself. Did you see that in verse 19? It enters in the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on behalf. He has become a high priest forever, the order of Melchizedek. Jesus has brought that anchor right up into God's presence. It is that confidence that we have that we can be forever with God in his presence, in his joy, that can be the anchor for our souls. And Jesus brought it there. 
It is fast and it's secure and it is not only holding us, but it is dragging us along with it. It is pulling us up into the heavenly places with God where we can be confident that we can say to God wherever we are, God be with us. God help us. We have that anchor. There's one last image in this passage that I want us to go to. And it says that he, Jesus is our forerunner. He has become our priest. Now, in, in Jesus' time, there, there was a tradition. It started in the Old Testament with the Day of Atonement, the one day where a priest could enter into the Holy of Holies, enter into God's presence himself. And he had to perform all these sacrifices and all these washings to make sure that he was okay to enter into the Holy of Holies, into the sanctuary. And by Jesus' day, they started this tradition of wrapping a rope around the high priest, just in case it didn't work. Just in case God was mad and that sacrifice wasn't enough. They wrapped a rope around around the high priest so that they could pull him back. They anchored him back into the the real world, and they were there to pull him back just in case it wasn't enough. The Bible says that Jesus entered into the Holy of Holies, and he had this rope tied around him too, but it wasn't to protect him. It wasn't just in case something went wrong for him. Instead, he was going to anchor it down into the Holy of Holies. And he was going to use it to drag us from the real world into his world. Into the place where God dwells. He was going to be the one dragging us into the Holy of Holies where we could be forever with God. And Jesus did that for us by dying on the cross to take away our sins. And to make a new covenant, a new promise, that we can be with God forever. Jesus said that the night he was betrayed. He said that, he said, I'm going to take my body and it's going to be broken for you. And my blood is going to seal a brand new covenant, a brand new promise. And this new covenant says that you can be assured that there is absolutely nothing to keep you from the blessings of eternity. It won't be because of your sin anymore because I will remove your sin. It won't be because of your inability to follow God's covenant because I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. He's going to give you a new spirit so you can follow me. He says there's this brand new covenant that guarantees, that makes it absolutely sure that you can be with God forever. You can be in the inheritance and the new heavens and the new earth. It guarantees absolutely sure that you will be blessed. And if the author of Hebrews was looking back and saying, whoa, God swore by himself. What bigger guarantee could that possibly be? Well, his answer can be, God swore by the blood of his very son. What could be more sure, what could be a more sure promise than that the blood of his very son was shed so that we 
could receive this new covenant. There is no better surety of the blessing that we will be blessed. There is no greater promise than the new covenant shed by his blood. It is a wonderful thing that you can hold on to. And so that's what we will do right now. We will remember that sure promise that his body is broken for us and his blood is shed for us to make a new covenant. And I encourage you, don't be bored by this, but use it to be a great encouragement. This communion will be a great encouragement to hold on to his hope because in it is the most sure promise that you can have that you will receive the blessing of Christ. And so 